Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of MetaStrategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guest this week is Kevin Scott. Kevin is the Chief Technology Officer and Executive Vice President of Technology and Research at Microsoft, one of the world's most valuable companies with revenues exceeding $125 billion annually. As CTO, Kevin is focused on helping make Microsoft an exceptional place for engineers, developers, and researchers to work and learn. He's also the author of the book, Reprogramming the American Dream, which focuses on the future of artificial intelligence and how it can be used to serve humanity. Prior to joining Microsoft, Kevin was the Senior Vice President of Engineering and Operations at LinkedIn. In this interview, we discuss Kevin's upbringing in rural Virginia and why he felt he had to leave his hometown to pursue opportunity. We also cover how people can have successful careers by using sophisticated technological tools without having to move to technology hubs like Silicon Valley in the future, a key thesis of his book. Kevin's thoughts on improving technology, knowledge, and expertise are also covered, as well as the importance of teaching kids technology, how the COVID-19 pandemic will make distance learning and working more prevalent, how AI and machine learning can be used for positive benefit with healthcare applications such as disease detection, why everyone must play a role in shaping technology's future, not just a select privileged few, as well as his takes on synthetic biology and a variety of other topics. Kevin Scott, welcome to Technovation. I'm happy to be on the uh, on the show. Kevin, you are the Chief Technology Officer of Microsoft, and I'm looking forward to spending a portion of our conversation covering your purview and your vision, your strategy in that role. You're also the author of Reprogramming the American Dream, a terrific book uh, that came out this April, and really draws upon your personal experience having grown up in rural Virginia in a town of called Gladys, uh, a town of just a few hundred people in population. And this book, in many ways, is a reflection on the lack of opportunity that you found. All things being equal, you've indicated that you would have loved to stay uh, in and around your hometown. But as your ambition grew, you found that uh, that wasn't necessarily something you could do. You had to make your way to uh, the parts of the country where the opportunities presented themselves. And you want to do something now about leveraging technology to create opportunity in in towns like your hometown of Gladys. Maybe that's a good place to begin. Can you talk a bit about your goal in writing this book, Reprogramming the American Dream? Yeah, I think you got it. Uh, you got it mostly right. So I, I grew up in Gladys, which is a very small town in rural central Virginia in the 70s and 80s. Um, and, you know, I, I was lucky enough to fall in love with computing right as the personal computing revolution was happening. Um, so it was, you know, and, and it's hard to call that anything other than luck just because there weren't role models and like there wasn't even the idea then I think in the population, like whether you lived in a big city or in a rural town like mine, that um, the technology industry was going to unfold in the way that it has in the subsequent decades. Um, so like, I think that's a huge piece of good luck that I had, but you, you are absolutely right that even though I had this clarity that 
I was really interested in computing and wanted to figure out how to have a career doing that. Um, I tried at every turn to stay near home. I chose a college that was near my family so that I could stay close to all of my, uh, my friends. And, and like we had a very close knit community back home. Um, and I, I chose, uh, my first job because it was close to home. And I chose, uh, the two places that I went to graduate school because they were near, uh, near home. And ultimately I, I just reached this point where I, I couldn't, do exactly the set of things that I wanted to do because uh, the opportunities just weren't there. And I was also just sort of laser focused on, uh, you know, things that look more and more specialized over time. Um, but like one of the, one of the things that I observed and like, this is one of the really great things about having the opportunity to do the book is I went back home and I visited a bunch of places that were like home. And I think that there are more opportunities now for folks to pursue careers in technology, to become entrepreneurs in their own community using these sophisticated technological tools that we now have available to us. Um, and to like have that success, have those careers, create those businesses in these communities without having necessarily to go pursue a dream in, in, in some place like Silicon Valley and like Silicon Valley is, is a perfectly wonderful place, but uh, like we, we should be able to create opportunity and prosperity everywhere, not just in, in these uh, coastal urban innovation centers. Yeah. And you tell, you tell the story that was uh, about a friend who started, I believe it was a precision plastics business. And you talk about in some ways, this being the model of, what you foresee going forward as opportunities, leveraging artificial intelligence, for example. And also you highlight that it's a good counterbalance that story and by extension your vision for those who worry that AI um, is all about sort of taking away jobs as opposed to um, creating them. Can you, can you talk a bit more about that story? Yeah, I, I think it was one of the most eye-opening things that I experienced when I wrote the book because I, yeah, I, I too was living in a little bit of a Silicon Valley filter bubble. Uh, and even though I was a machine learning practitioner, like I'd been involved for the better part of the past two decades in building these big AI-powered systems and companies that depended on AI in a pretty substantial way. And like I had you know, just sort of let the momentum of the conversation that was happening around me shape my point of view about what I thought the future was going to look like without critically examining whether or not that was a, an inevitable thing. And I went back home to, uh, to Gladys um, in the early stages of writing this book. And I, I visited my friend who is the manager of this company that's doing precision plastics machining and the, the business that they had created there was literally in a building that used to be a, a textile plant and like the textile industry in this part of the country got completely obliterated by globalization a few decades back. And so it's this great irony that this new business using very modern tools and a very modern way of doing things was 
created in in the you know the husk of this industry that had been uh, you know been been so affected by globalization, and so the, the existence of this business is predicated on these sophisticated tools coupled with human ingenuity. So they are able to market their services to their customers using the internet. They're able to communicate with their customers uh, using the internet. And then they use these sophisticated CNC machines to make very precise plastic parts for a bunch of different applications for a bunch of different customers across the country. And they are able to be competitive with the global companies that are doing this precisely because they're able to get access to this uh, sophisticated technology, these automated uh, automated CNC milling machines. Um, and it was just eye-opening uh, to me because like the technology here was the thing that was helping to in essence, repatriate jobs that had been globalized away and that was playing an equalizing factor, like helping these businesses be competitive. And if the technology didn't exist, the business wouldn't exist. Because it did, like they were employing a bunch of, you know, skilled workers who were and are, uh, you know, like working with customers to translate the ideas for their products into a form that these machines can go execute to make parts um, and their business was growing and prospering. And uh, you know, the wages earned by people in these jobs are more than the factory wages uh, you know, in the textile plant that had been there prior, which has this profound impact on the community. And so I, they are also like, this was the, you know, the key realization for me is this particular business and a whole bunch of others like them are uniquely positioned to be able to use the sophisticated tools of AI machine learning that are coming. So they will be benefited by this technology trend. Like they, they've got this grit and entrepreneurial energy and already understand that their tools can be their advantage. Uh, and the types of things that they're doing will absolutely be benefited by more machine learning, which will create more jobs and more opportunities in these communities. And talk a bit about your, your thought about how to spur on more, more uh, incidences of, of uh, companies and entrepreneurs like the story you told. Yeah, I think there's a ton of stuff that we can do. A lot of it, unfortunately, is uh, really prosaic things. So, um, you know, one of the big impediments to being able to build uh, very high tech businesses with, uh, you know, very sophisticated digital workers uh, powering those businesses is you need a skilled labor pool, which is about educating and inspiring kids in these communities to uh, become interested in these things and then to help them connect with all of the knowledge and information that exists that can help them acquire those skills that will let them pursue their own digital future. As well as like just some super basic things that is just shameful that we haven't fixed yet, like uh, access to broadband connectivity. Like there's just no way that you can 
reasonably educate your kids, attract and retain really great employees to these jobs and to even run the businesses themselves unless you have really good broadband connectivity in all of these places. And we're still in a world where 25 million people in the United States do not have adequate access to broadband. 19 million of those are in these rural communities. And so that's something we definitely have to go uh, to go fix. Um, you know, aside from that, like there's also other things that we can be doing uh, just in terms of directing capital flows to entrepreneurs who are in these communities. Uh, and so, you know, I, I really admire the work that folks like Steve Case is doing, that J.D. Vance, uh, who uh, had partnered with Steve on his Rise of the Rest Fund, which is a venture fund that uh, invests in entrepreneurs that are in these places that aren't the traditional uh, coastal urban innovation centers where most of the venture capital actually flows. Um, and, you know, I think there's even some opportunity for the government to think about bigger programs. Um, so, you know, we, in the, in the, in the fifties and sixties, we made the choice to invest a very small percentage of our GDP in the Apollo program. We picked the moon as the, you know, the, the eponymous moonshot, um, but which in a whole bunch of ways was arbitrary. What wasn't arbitrary is that it was this big, hairy, audacious goal that allowed us to focus both the academy and uh, private business and the public sector into a vision for the future that resulted in us doing a bunch of science and a bunch of uh, engineering and business work that created most of the modern aerospace industry um, and, and has had enormous positive repercussions for uh, the world that we live in now. And I think we could choose to say that we want to pick one of these big, hairy, audacious goals that uh, AI technologies and machine learning could help reach uh, and just pour a little bit of our national wealth into this thing in a coordinated way where you create uh, a really great collaboration between um, between private companies and, and the academy and the government to go solve a big problem for the public good, like potentially uh, ubiquitous, high quality, uh, low cost healthcare. Uh, you know, that you, it, it, it could be that like we could do something that was even better than the Apollo program. Yeah, what an interesting vision you have. And I know that another area of passion, which you've alluded to, um, is is uh, early childhood education. It's one of the areas of focus of the Scott Foundation, your, your family foundation. Uh, and as we are having this conversation, we're in the throes of the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, which has changed so many things. One of the things that's been highlighted, of course, is that as children now need to, um, for their own safety, be educated in the home, uh, there is even more of a divide now between those who have solid um, internet connections, broadband connections, et cetera, uh, and those who don't even have access to inter the internet at all. Uh, especially perhaps in rural communities, as you've described, and uh, perhaps you know uh, yet another example of the the haves making kind of a gigantic leap past the have-nots, uh, especially during this period that we don't know how long it will endure, at least as we sit here now. Um, 
I'd be interested in your your thoughts about you know some of the broader implications of you know bringing uh, of, of of from an education perspective of what you're describing also. Yeah, I think the thing that we the thing that we may be struggling against right now is this preconceived notion that artificial intelligence is uh, too complicated to teach to. Uh, to kids. And I I think exactly the opposite is true. Um, The experience that I've had over the past uh, 16 years, like so in 2004, I wrote my first serious uh, machine learning system. And at the time, you know, I I had uh, graduate degrees in computer science and I had to sit with graduate textbooks on statistical machine learning back papers and you know plow through a bunch of daunting technical material to get up to speed on things. And then I spent six months or so writing a whole bunch of code that that solved the particular problem that we were trying to solve. What's happened in the intervening 16 years is that because of open source and their cloud platforms and uh, all of the high quality educational materials that are available on the internet, but Sam video, I, I think a motivated high school student could do that same project that was had a very high barrier to entry for someone like me and took six months of effort. Like a high school kid could do this in two days now. Um, and so I, I think we're at the point where the technology itself is fairly teachable and accessible. And in fact, like there's some people like my uh, former colleague, uh, Peter North, who's the director of research at Google, has made this very interesting argument that machine learning itself is changing the paradigm that used to harness computers to do work for us from programming, which is inherently a uh, you know, just sort of a weirdly idiosyncratic thing because to become a programmer, you have to understand the complexity of a machine and and the you know these low level tools that are required to get the computer to do something, and then you have to learn uh, how to translate human understandings of problems into terms that the computer uh, can. You know, the computer's not understanding anything, but how the, you know, the computer can implement a, a solution to a particular problem. And so that's that that whole process of programming just requires a lot of training. And, uh, you know, again, it's it's getting easier over time. But with machine learning, what you do to get a computer to be able to solve a problem on your on your behalf is you are teaching it how to solve a problem. And like my my. My assertion is, uh, like my, I really do believe this, that uh, teaching is an inherent thing that humans understand how to do. Like you can observe children, like sometimes even prelingual children who have this instinct to teach people around them how to do something. And if, if, if we can harness that, uh, you know, human impulse, this ability that we have to teach each other, like we can certainly teach machines how to solve problems, which makes, I think, programming or like, you know, harnessing a computer's power even more accessible than it's ever been. And like certainly a thing and a set of skills that are absolutely uh, approachable for 
even very young kids, uh, you know, like some of this stuff I can teach my kids how to do who they're nine and 11 right now. And, uh, you know, some of these teaching tools, it's entirely in scope uh, to like think about a nine-year-old building a computer vision model. Like they wouldn't use that language, but like they can teach, uh, teach a machine how to use computer vision on their behalf to solve a problem, which is really exciting. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and I also wonder, you know, um, lingering on the topic of the of the COVID nineteen pandemic, I, I'm curious. Do you um, have you had a chance to reflect during these trying times as to the role that um, AI and technology, and I know that Microsoft even more specifically is getting uh, further into the um, the health the healthcare implications um, uh, of 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 this crisis, but not only solving this one, but also preparing for the crises to come. I'm curious what thoughts you might have on that. Yeah. I mean, Microsoft is a interesting company in that we have such a very broad platform of tools and services that we provide to people. So, you know, there are a bunch of things that are changing right now. Like um, we're running the world's largest work from home experiment at the moment where, you know, people, yeah, because of this horrible thing that's happening or having to figure out how to be productive when they're sheltering in place in their homes and how to teach their children. And so they're, they're just things that we're figuring out at this accelerated pace that I think are going to be endearing changes to the way that we do things. So like there will be more work from home. There will be more use of the existing tools that we use to remotely collaborate with people. And like there will be new tools invented that uh, you know, that help us be even more productive when we're uh, not physically proximate with one another. I think distance learning is going to uh, become a more prevalent thing. And I think the tools for doing it and just sort of the culture that you need to develop to make it successful is going to become more prevalent. Uh, and like even things like telemedicine. So, you know, my daughter has a, a a foot injury that she's been dealing with sort of a minor thing for the past six months or so. And, um, you know, she had a doctor's appointment with her podiatrist set up before the shelter in place. And like, normally we would have, you know, bundled everybody up, gotten into a car, driven to the doctor's office, sat in a waiting room, uh, you know, finally, you know, gotten in to see the doctor and like had the exam and then, you know, just sort of retrace that whole path. And like, what we were able to do instead because uh, COVID-19 is sort of forcing everybody to shelter in place uh, was like, we did that whole doctor's appointment with, uh, you know, with a video conference tool and it took 15 minutes instead of probably an hour and a half or two hours it would have taken before. So like, that's, that's probably a good thing for certain types of uh, interactions with your doctor. And so like a ton of that's happening, but you know, getting to AI and like how I think it is going to have a more prominent role to play. I do think that one of the things that this um, pandemic is making obvious is that we need to have substantially more investment and innovation in our medical and our biosciences research infrastructure than we were making before. Um, I think there are multiple arguments to be made for uh, having big technology investments in getting 
ubiquitous, uh, low cost, high quality healthcare. So like that's, you know, I wrote about in the book that, you know, we should think about you know, an Apollo program, like we just talked about it a minute ago, but like, I really do think that like, that could be a very interesting thing that we could pick to go invest in. And, and it's a very interesting interplay between, you know, our existing medical institutions, like what we can do with AI and like how all of this is interact intersecting with the, uh, biosciences and, uh, synthetic biology communities. Um, you know, to, to sort of like, ground this in an example, one of the things that we have already seen over the past handful of years is that when you have ubiquitous uh, biometric sensing, so uh, like smartwatches or fitness bands, for instance, that can measure your pulse rate or like more sophisticated sensors that can measure your body temperature or the oxygen saturation in your blood and your movement. Um, that we are able to take that data and feed it into sophisticated machine learning systems and use it to diagnose uh, health conditions that you might have. And, you know, perhaps unintuitively, just from the heart tick data that comes from something like a fitness band, we know that we can predict conditions like atrial fibrillation, which is a condition of the heart that causes a very large number of the strokes that people experience every year. But like you can also diagnose things that might not be intuitive at all, like uh, hypertension and type 2 diabetes. And so imagine if everybody had some cheap biometric sensing that, that was with them all the time that was being fed into uh, an AI uh, early warning system for their body. Um, it, it could, and I don't know whether this is going to be the case or not, but it could be that from some of this data, you could predict when someone was in the early stages of, uh, of a COVID-19 infection, for instance, uh, where they are pre-symptomatic and, and you could very early get them to, you know, sort of treatment and like potentially quarantine, uh, to help manage the pandemic. So like that, that is a, potential thing that we ought to be looking at very, very hard. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I, I could chew your ear off with examples for how I, I know AI and machine learning can be used for positive benefit on these healthcare applications. Yeah, very interesting indeed. I, I understand um, you've been the CTO uh, of Microsoft since uh, 2017. Um, uh, January of that year, you came to the role after um, a really storied career as an engineer early on in Google. You were the senior vice president of engineering and operations at LinkedIn uh, prior to its acquisition by Microsoft. Uh, and I understand that uh, among the things that you bond, bond over with your now fellow author, Satya Nadella, who, who wrote about this in Hit Refresh, uh, is this philosophy that technology needs to benefit everyone and not just the privileged few. Um, and it, obviously hearing uh, plenty of anecdotes about that in this conversation, but, um, I'm curious about like just the relationship or some of the, some of the similarities in the way in which you and he, you know, think about the use of technology and, and perhaps even sort of how, how that helped, uh, uh, as you were contemplating the possibility of taking on the role of CTO of the company. Yeah, I, I think it's actually maybe the most important factor in my deciding to take the job 
is how aligned Satya and I are on how we see the technology industry's obligation to society and like how when you think about building technology systems as platforms that you can open up widely to serve a bunch of different people's interests, uh, not just your own, that you can get this incredible uh, flourishing of goodness. Um, like I, I, you know, I just fundamentally don't like this idea that we are going to have a world that is more and more influenced by technology and the technology is going to be a larger and larger factor in shaping the future. Um, that if that's the case, like you want to have as diverse a range of people as humanly possible participating in the creation of the technology. You need gender diversity, you need ethnic diversity, you need socioeconomic diversity, you need geographic diversity, you need people from all different backgrounds and perspectives and with different points of view able to, you know, on a near equal basis have access to all of the best tools that technology can provide so that they can go solve the problems that they can clearly see from their vantage point. Um, you know, like a good example of, of this is um, when I went to Memphis, as I was writing the book with uh, Steve Case and J.D. Vance with the Rise of the Rest Fund, the, the most interesting businesses that I saw there were in precision agriculture. And so in that one trip to that one, uh, one city, I saw more things happening in precision ag than I had seen in years happening in Silicon Valley. And like part of that is just perspective and context. So Memphis sits in the, in the middle of, you know, 18 million of the most fertile acres on the planet earth. And a big part of Memphis's industry is all of the agriculture and then there's just a big logistics industry on like how you move these crops that are grown in the area uh to and from uh you know the the customers the producers and consumers um and and you know it was just a reminder that you know when people in communities like this who can clearly see these problems uh that the businesses have in in their particular part of the world, uh, like when they have access to really sophisticated tools, like they can solve problems in incredible ways. Uh, and like I, I would just like to see more of that. And Satya and I are are completely aligned. Um, you know, the thing that he tells people all the time, and like I think he really believes it. You know, all the way down to his bones, is that Microsoft is a platform company like our success only comes when our customers are successful when they can use the things that we build to help them build the things that matter to them that will help them create their businesses and to create prosperity and success for themselves their families their employees uh, their communities as i was uh preparing for this i i found out that you uh speaking of very interesting uses of ai that you are a welder and that uh, if i have this correct you're in the process of building an AI powered coffee maker. Is that, is that right? 
I am. Uh, <laughs> uh, Is that going to be on the market anytime soon? No, I, no, I don't, I don't think it will be. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know, the the reason that I'm so like I, I don't know what it is. I have this thing uh, for building coffee machines. This will be my uh, fourth or fifth uh, coffee machine that I've designed from scratch, and they all have this uh, Rube Goldberg esque uh, flavor to them, where they are <laughs> unnecessarily complicated, and and this one certainly is but part of the, part of my motivation for doing it was uh, other than satisfying my own curiosity was to show people that um the hardware and the software for putting an ai user interface on a piece of uh like a, a an appliance is accessible um so i'm not suggesting that it's uh you know the thing that everybody should go out and do but uh like i wanted to spark folks imaginations about what was possible very interesting well, what where does the ai component come into play yeah so the the coffee machine is uh it's a vacuum siphon coffee machine which is actually a pretty old way of making coffee so they uh the the in victorian england uh back in siphon coffee machines were uh popular and so the idea there is that you have um you have a you have an upper and a lower chamber uh connected by a by a pipe and in the upper chamber you have your coffee grounds uh, and a filter and in the lower chamber you have water you heat the water in the lower chamber and as the vapor pressure in that chamber increases it pushes the water up through the grounds in the upper chamber um, and you keep the heat in the lower chamber uh, so that you've got this equilibrium vapor pressure and you hold it for the brewing time of the coffee like let's say a couple of minutes uh, and then you turn the heat off and as the vapor pressure in the lower chamber collapses it literally pulls the water down through the ground coffee in the upper chamber uh, and like you have your your brewed and filtered coffee and so it looks spectacular when you're doing it. It's very steampunk. Uh, the AI piece of this <laughs> is the machine itself that I'm building uh, doesn't have buttons or a display on it. So it has a camera, a speaker, and a microphone. And so when you walk up to it, uh, if it recognizes your face, uh, it knows uh, it knows who you are and it remembers your preferences and it will say to you, uh, you know, Kevin, would you like a cup of coffee? Um, and then you tell it yes, and you can, uh, you know, sort of walk through a dialogue to get your coffee brewed. If it doesn't recognize you, then it walks you through a separate dialogue that uh, gets your name and like remembers your uh, and, and your preferences for how you like your coffee brewed. And I, I think, you know, that that sounds a little bit science fictional, but like we're at the point where all of those technology pieces uh, are like completely well understood and it's not that expensive to incorporate that sort of functionality into a, into a device. That's fascinating. Gosh, I, I wish I could uh, see this in action. So, uh, so, so someday I'll be, I'll be done and I'll make a video uh, so everyone can see it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll keep my eyes open for that. Yeah. I wanted to also ask you, Kevin, as you look to the future, we're talking about a number of, of um, technology trends that are on the ascent, um, uh, artificial intelligence primary in our conversation today, for instance. But as you look to the future, what are some other tech trends that particularly excite you and why? Well, I, I think the thing that's really exciting me right now is uh, the really rapid progress that we're making in the uh, biosciences, particularly in synthetic biology, which is... Uh, like I think one of the most interesting new engineering 
disciplines that is emerging at the moment. Um, and, and like the basic idea with synthetic biology is like, how can you take all of the complexity of uh, biology, whether it's, uh, you know, just for manufacturing, um, you know, organic compounds or for, you know, sort of controlling and regulating the processes inside of an, an organism. Um, it, so it, it's really fascinating to me, this, this whole space, um, prior to the, prior to the pandemic, uh, I had made it one of my top priorities this year to get very deeply entrenched in, uh, the science and engineering that's happening in this field. And now that we do have this pandemic, uh, those efforts I've, uh, you know, redoubled or tripled, um, just trying to get ramped up really quickly. And, and again, you know, I think it's one of the places where um, there is a very, very powerful intersection between the research that's going on in the biosciences and with machine learning. Um, you know, so one of the things that Microsoft has been working on for a while now with a company called Adaptive Biotech is figuring out how to take a profile of your immune system. So like what it, what, um, what level of uh, T cells of different types do you have in your bloodstream? And from that profile of your, uh, of your T cells, can we figure out like what that says about the diseases or illnesses that your body might be trying to cope with right now, or that might have recently uh, you know, sort of passed through your system in the, in the past. Um, and this is a problem that biologists have been trying to crack for decades and it's like just very complicated. Uh, you know, er everything about the human biology or, you know, the biology of any sort of non-trivial organism is like very, very complex. And the thing that we've discovered over the past few years is that when you take all of the great things that have been happening on sequencing technology and like all of the things that we now better understand about biological processes and like you couple it with a set of techniques like uh, like machine learning, like you, you can get close to, you know, maybe solving this holy grail of like getting a readout from your immune system that tells you like, okay, you may be pre-symptomatic for this thing. Uh, like go see your doctor and like they can prescribe, a, you know, a, a, a set of therapies for you that will, um, you know, get you well before you even feel sick. Um, and, and we've been able to really quickly pivot uh, some of that work to you know, hopefully building a set of tools that will help us uh, better manage the, the pandemic. Um, and like that's one example among hundreds and hundreds of interesting things that are happening at this intersection of AI and biology. Excellent. Well, Ke uh, Kevin Scott, thank you so much for taking time with me today. It's been uh, been great speaking with you. I appreciate you sharing perspectives from your book, um, from your career, uh, your the areas in which you're focused, uh, both personally and professionally. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me next week when my guest will be Nathan Rogers, the Chief Information Officer of SAIC.